0: It is good to be here again and sing these songs together and uh, give praise to our God and continue to study the holiness of God and how it impacts our walk. So, open your Bibles this morning and turn, uh, turn to 1 John chapter 1. And we are going to go a little bit further now in John's letter and... Uh, we're going, as I said, we're going now to this morning, this first session, and, and going to do an exposition here of verses 6 to 10. So our, our focus is really going to be now just in these next four verses. But to set the tone, let me begin reading from verse 5, and I'll read all the way through to the end of verse 10. First John chapter 1, verse 5, the Apostle John writes this, This is the message we have heard from him, And announce to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The Apostle John writes in a certain context in the history of the church. As I said yesterday, it was a time when there was this religion that was growing, that was a mixture of Christian thought, Platonic philosophy, and other superstitions brought in from paganism. And this movement that would later blossom into what is known as Gnosticism this movement claimed a particular insight, a particular knowledge. Gnosticism, that that word, is based off the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. And the people of the culture at this time that had been already exposed for several decades to Christian thinking, but were not saved, were developing this kind of religion through syncretism with philosophy and paganism, and were, were claiming to have special knowledge from God. They were the knowing ones. They were the ones who believed that Christ in some special way, apart from the earthly ministry of Jesus, that the Christ had appeared to them and given them this special knowledge. They taught a dualistic worldview. They believed that the spiritual immaterial realm, the realm of the abstract, was inherently good, but the material world, the physical world, the world that we see and the world that, that we live in was inherently evil. And so this related to all, or this resulted in all kinds of, of error, resulted in, for example, a perverted Christology. They rejected the incarnation of of Christ, naturally, because of their view of the flesh. Some taught that Christ only appeared as a man, but really was not. Others taught that the Christ came upon Jesus at baptism, but then departed from Him before His crucifixion. John is going to deal with this later on in 1 John 4, verse 2 and 3, when He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. He'll deal with it also in 2 John verses 7 and 8. There's a perverted Christology that naturally led to a perverted view of the atonement. A perverted view of of how man is saved. And the key idea that was present within this movement was that the Son of God was never truly united with human flesh, nor did He die on the cross, nor does His death have anything to do with salvation. And that clearly resulted then in a perverted morality, a perverted view of what what the Christian life really looks at. This dualism had resulted in two significant errors for the day. One was the error of asceticism. And you think about this, if the material world, if everything that is related to physical flesh is inherently evil, you have to do then everything possible to detach yourself from the material world. So from this asceticism comes the view that marriage is sinful and you have to avoid it. You, you have to avoid all kinds of comforts and therefore you go into the wilderness deprive yourself, and through that deprivation is really when when you leave the material world and you become united with the immaterial world. So there was asceticism, a kind of mystic deprivation that was present even in John's day. And there was also the error of the opposite, the antinomianism. And that view taught that since the physical aspect of of our existence is inherently sinful and the spiritual aspect is inherently good then it doesn't really matter what we do in the physical world right it's just it's it's just evil anyway there's nothing we can do about it so just in just live with it go with the flow and in the end as long as you're also spiritual your spirit will prevail and the flesh will be done away with. And and that led to all kinds of licentiousness among these Gnostics. So there were these two competing ideas, and into this, John writes this letter to protect the early church from the threat of these false ideologies. And it relates even to what we discussed yesterday in 1 verse 5, that God is light That we have to begin there. We have to begin with the right view of God. And I like what John Owen said about this. And and, and remember this statement. John Owen said this. It connects so well with how the Apostle John moves from 1 verse 5, that proposition about the character of God, to verses 6 to 10, with all the implications of this, when John Owen said this, low and vile thoughts of God will quickly usher in light, proud, and foolish thoughts concerning ourselves. And that's what had happened uh, with the Gnostics or the Proto-Gnostics. And John writes to the church in order to protect them from that false thinking. And so that's what we have here in... In 1 John chapter 1, verses 6-10, to 10, and, and this is how we can understand the flow here. In, in, in chapter 1, verse 5, what we talked about yesterday dealt with the source of light. We must begin, when we talk about holiness and, and walking in the light, we must begin first with God, and, and we must ensure that we have the right view of God, the high view of God. That's what we find in 1, verse 5. That is the source of light, God Himself. And now in verses 6 to 10, and this is how you could actually title our session this morning, we find implications of the light. Implications of the light in verses 6 to 10. And we see this. God's essence, God's holiness, has direct implications for our existence. God's essence, God's holiness has direct implications for our existence, for our walk. And if we truly accept the proposition that John gives us in 1 verse 5 that God is absolute moral purity, then our lives will reflect that reality in two ways. And we're going to see this worked out in verses 6 to 10. Our lives will reflect The assertion of 1, verse 5, that God is light, in two ways. It will reflect it in what we confess, in our confession, and it will reflect itself in how we conduct ourselves, in our conduct. The reality that God is light will be reflected in our confession and our conduct. Now, how does John... How does John communicate this reality that God is light impacts our confession and our conduct? He does this through a list of denials and affirmations in verses 6 to 10. And and I read it just a few moments ago, and and probably you noted it, it. It's a series of if then statements in verses 6 to 10. In particular, there are five of them. We're going to look at each one of them. Five implications of the light five implications that grow out of the reality that God is light five implications that deal with our confession and our conduct now out of these five there are there are three there are three denials and two affirmations three denials and two affirmations and i could walk with you through this text going one by one, instead I'm going to categorize them. Because what John does here is he offers a a, a denial, then an affirmation. A denial, then an affirmation, then a denial. So there's, there's three denials, two affirmations. And it, he goes back and forth. Denial, affirmation, denial, affirmation, denial. And, and there's this logic to them, this building climax to them, that John gives to the churches in Asia Minor to help them deal with the, the, the corrupt view of God and the corrupt view of, of the Christian life that was threatening the churches. And so I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to categorize them. First, we'll look at the, the denials, and then we're, we're going to look at the affirmations. We're going to look at the denials, and then the affirmations. And it's important to note that as we go through these statements, these if-then statements that John words them really as universals. Just look at them. They're they're, they're really a a, a universal statement because he says, if we say, if we walk, if we say, if we confess, if we say. He's involving himself in that, and every one of these he includes himself, it's the, it's, it's the first person plural, if we, not if you, if we. And so by including himself in these, he's showing us that these are universal realities that apply to everyone without exception. Even to the apostles themselves, even to those who had the highest authority within the church. They are not exempt from what is stated here. And if they are not exempt, then we ourselves today are not exempt from what is stated in these denials and affirmations. So let's look at the implications uh, in the form of the denials first. The implications of the light as John states these in terms of denials. Here's the first one. It's in verse 6. The denials are in verse 6, 8, and 10. So the denials are in the even verses, the affirmation The affirmations are in the odd verses, 7 and 9. He begins with the denial, verse 6. Look at it. He says this, If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in the darkness, then we lie and do not practice the truth. So he begins with a confession here. A hypothetical confession although it perhaps was uh, was true of the Gnostics, uh, but he's stating it in this universal terminology. If we say, if we confess, this is is our self-description stated in terms, in words. If we say that we have fellowship with him. That's the confession. Let's look at that for just a moment what is what is John saying here he to to refer or to describe fellowship he uses the word koinonia if we have koinonia with him that is with God that is with the one who is light now what does koinonia mean koinonia refers to a close association a a sharing of mutual interests, a sharing of of close relationship. So koinonia, you know, you can describe in in various ways. It's it's fellowship, it's sharing, it's association, it's relationship. Uh, and, And what John is saying is if we confess that we share life together with the God who is light, And yet, in reality, notice what he says, yet, walk in the darkness. And Now, he's drawing the distinction here between confession and reality. And what's the reality? We walk in darkness. The the verb to walk is what's called a Hebraism. It's it's a very common term drawn from the Old Testament. It was a, a way the Old Testament people would often refer to life. It's a walk. Because, you know, that's what they did in those days. They walked everywhere. And walk was considered to, to be the metaphor of life because life is never static. It's always moving to a destination. And so life is a walk. It's a practice. It's a, it's a moral course of action. And so he says if we, can, if, if we confess that we have fellowship with God, we share mutual interests, yet live our lives in the darkness. That's the sphere And remember the verse that we looked at last night, verse 5, in Him there is no darkness at all. John asserted that in God there is not even a tinge of darkness, not even the smallest hint of it. So John is just drawing out what is clearly a logical incompatibility here. We say that we share communion with the God who is light and yet walk in darkness the implication is this. Now, notice the implication. It's in the then statement. So, the if statement is the confession. The then statement is the, rea- the, the implication. Here's what is really the truth, John says in the second half of verse 6 We lie and do not practice the truth. We lie and do not practice the truth. John states it in very concrete terms. He doesn't say we're deceived in this case. He he doesn't say that we're mistaken. He states it for what it is. Anyone who claims to share life together with the God of light and yet walks in darkness, moral corruption is a liar. Liar, liar, pants on fire, is what what John is saying. This is not an innocent mistake. This is not some kind of ignorance. There is complete moral culpability. We lie. We lie. We know that lying is traced all the way back to Genesis 3. Part of the original sin that ushered the curse into, into this world, that ushered depravity into this world, that all of Adam's offspring are now tainted by that. A lie is what brought sin into the world. A lie is now part of this world. The serpent lied to Eve when he said, you shall not surely die. Lying continued there then with Cain in Genesis 4, when Cain says, I do not know where my brother Abel is. Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. And lying continues to this day. It is inherently part of sin itself. And you know this, that, that in the moment of temptation, if you think of it, when the last time that you, you're aware of, of your sin, that in that moment, when you succumbed to the temptation, you believed in a lie. Because that temptation was promising something to you. You shall not die. Or in more practical terms, this isn't a biggie. Or this will give you what you're looking for. All these different lies that temptation is, is putting forward, in the moment of succumbing to that, we believe the lie. Sin is wrapped up with lying. But what John does here is he say, says that if we are walking in, in the darkness, if, if we are, are, are living in that sphere of existence, our life is, is described as dark. John says, we lie. We lie. Furthermore, there's a second. In fact, we're going to find this in all of the then statements, in all of these, uh, all of these statements. There's two parts of it. Not only do we lie. Notice in this implication, in the then statement, we do not practice the truth. We do not do the truth. John picks up on a, or, or uses a synonym to the, to the verb to walk, which refers to a lifestyle. A life, and he uses a different verb to describe the same thing. We we do not do, we do not practice. In a way, in a way you could you could uh, use the same verb even and say, if we say that we have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, then we lie. That's our statement. We lie, and we do not walk in the truth. We do not walk the truth. That's that's the reality. And John is very concerned about truth in in his writings. You go back to his Gospel, and you see all the times that John records statements about truth. And we know that famous one where Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You get into first John, and truth is a, is a key concept here. Second John, truth is a key concept. Third John, truth is a key concept over and over. Again, John is emphasizing truth. Truth refers to that which it corresponds to reality as God has determined it to be. That's truth. In our day, of course, truth is reality is we have determined it to be, right? That's the postmodern idea for truth. Postmoderns don't deny truth. That's a, mis- a misconception. They just say truth is what I define it to be. And John says, here's the reality. You can say you have fellowship with God all you like. You can say that. You can make grand confessions, You can write poetry. You can give testimonies in front of the church and in front of the world. You can make all kinds of lofty statements. You can believe in your own heart of hearts that you have fellowship with God. You can believe that all you like, John says. But if you're walking, you're living in the darkness, you do not do the truth. You do not live a life consistent with reality as God has determined it to be. Truth, ultimately, is not just something that shows up in a confession. Truth is something that shows up in a life, in a way of action. And if there is a dissonance between what you're confessing and what is reality in your life, how you're living your life, if if there is a dissonance there, it means you you don't understand the truth. Truth that is understood leads to, to implications. It leads to consequences. It's like the domino that tips. There's no way that you can keep the dominoes up anymore. Once that first one called knowledge of the truth falls over on the next, it just keeps going. That's reality. That's what it means to understand truth. It always has implications. You cannot disconnect them. And so here's the summary of, of this first denial. That God is light repudiates inconsistency between lofty profession and life practice. That God is light repudiates the inconsistency between lofty profession and life practice. John begins with the most simplest of denials here. And even though we're very used to this inconsistency, John is getting, it, getting right up in our faces and saying, look at this, when, when we really believe that God is light, we cannot be satisfied or comfortable with this inconsistency. We cannot just say, well, that's just the way it is. No. No. No, it must jar us. Here's the second denial, and it's found in the next even verse, verse 8. The the first one summarized was that God is light, repudiates uh, the inconsistency between lofty profession and life practice. This second one now builds in more intensity. It's found in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's as if John is assuming the response that is going to come from the the prognostics on this. He began with the simplest of denials, saying that since God is light, there is no comfortability that we can have in an inconsistency between lofty profession and life practice. And and the Gnostics would turn around and say, well, I don't have sin. I don't walk in darkness. That's not sin. I don't have it. That's the confession. Notice the if part of the statement. Here's the confession that is made again in verse 8. If we say... Literally, you could say it this way, if we say that sin, we do not have. John is emphasizing a a, a particular kind of confession here, and the emphasis is on the present moment, and the emphasis is on those who would counter John's argument by saying, sure, God is light, but I don't have sin. Present moment, there's no sin in, in my life. And the word sin here is, notice this, it's singular, not plural. And that intensifies the the noun a little bit. If John had said, I don't have sins, the emphasis would be in that confession on particular sins. Because it would be in the plural. It has a way of concretizing, making concrete the concept of sins. But that John states it in the singular is to give it this absolute sense, essentially referring to sinfulness. I don't have sinfulness. That's the confession that John is zeroing in on. And it's it's not a confession that the person would make saying that sin doesn't exist. So it's not a, you know, the Christian science people out there today, Mary Baker Eddy and so on, just like sin doesn't exist. That's not specifically what they're confessing. What they're confessing here is that we don't have sin. Yes, sin exists out there with them, but we don't have sinfulness. The false teachers of this day and their adherents believed that they had achieved some level of sinlessness. And again, either through this idea of asceticism or through antinomianism. And again, this, this mentality even comes through today. You see, there's nothing new under the sun. So on the one hand, what's asceticism? Asceticism is, is deprivation. And so there are those even today who would say that I have so deprived myself, I don't have sin anymore. I, I've, I've thrown the TV out of my house. I don't have internet. I... You know, I, I don't even have a phone. Or if I have a phone, it's a flip phone and all I can do is text. And, or, you know, I it, it go down the line and, and go through all those things. I have deprived myself of these things. You know what? I don't have sinfulness. Or the other side says, you know what? The, the flesh doesn't matter anyway. So even if I engage in these things, it's not really sin because I'm a different person. My soul is really who I am. And in my soul, there is no connection to what I do in the body. And there are those who believe that today. In fact, you could really say that there are many professing evangelicals around today who would have that idea operating in a practical level. They create a dualistic life. There's the flesh. And then there's me. There's my body and what I do, and that's not really even me. Who I am is this sinless person, and I have no sin. I have no sin. John is dealing with that kind of mentality. So that's the confession, that we have no sin. Now notice the implication that John draws from that in verse 8, the then statement. So with all these, there's an if statement where the confession is made, and then a then statement where the implication is drawn. Here's the then statement. We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in, it, in us. Again, there's a twofold implication, as there is with all of these. The twofold implication in the previous one was we lie, and we do not practice the truth. Now, the implication verse 8 is we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Let's look at the first of these, this twofold implication. We are deceiving ourselves. In the previous one, John said, we lie. Here he says we are deceiving ourselves. And John here says, here's another problem that we are living under our own self deception. It's literally ourselves we have deceived. It's emphatic. And the word for deceive is from the Greek word planao, from which we get the word planets interesting association, but it's drawn from maritime navigation. Here's why. Because uh, in those days, they didn't have GPS and all the other fancy navigation tools we have today. And so the, the maritimers would, would look to the stars at night to determine where to go. They couldn't see the coastline anymore. So their way of navigating would be to follow the stars to know where north is, south, east, west, And there would be those immature, foolish, inexperienced maritimers who would lock on to a planet that looked like a star, and they'd follow it. And of course, what happens with the planets? They move in the sky, don't they? And you would be deceived. All of a sudden, daytime comes, and you're not where you thought you'd be. You're in the middle of the Mediterranean, and that's not where you want to be. The same idea is brought here that the one who says that we have no sin, is the one who's following the planets. The one who's being led astray. His, his mind isn't operating according to the fixed standard. Instead, it is operating according to a standard that is leading into deception. You cannot possibly say that you have eradicated sin, John says. All the facts... Testify against this confession. To espouse this confession, to espouse it is to deceive yourself in the face of otherwise overwhelming evidence. It's the sad and and sorry state of self-deception. And again, it, it marks many men. The sad... Situation It happens among pastors, and it happens among men training for ministry. I was dealing with a situation even just recently with a couple of seminary students who, uh, who uh, were confronted on issues related to pride, and, and, and one of them in particular simply stated, and I could not believe it, he simply said stated, I do not struggle with pride. And you sit there and you go, okay, do you realize what you just said? And you even ask that question and the answer is, I just, it's, I don't struggle with pride. And you say, there's only one explanation for this and it is sinful self-deception. How can you even say those things? But that's what was being said and John confronts that and says, if you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourselves. And here's the second part of the implication he draws down again the idea of truth, and he says this, not only are you not practicing the truth, but this is even more intensive. Notice the second half of that then statement. He says, and then the truth is not in us. It's not just that you do not practice the truth, you do not walk in the truth, in the sphere of truth, but you know what? The truth is not even in you. What is in you then? Myths, fables, fictions... The one who says, I am guiltless. The one who says, I don't feel any guilt. is the one who's living in deception. Why is this so dangerous? One commentator states it this way. Whenever the principle of sin is denied as an ongoing part of life, there follows a denial of responsibility for individual actions. So, So here's... Here's how the dominoes fall in this situation. When there is no acknowledgement of guilt, falls against the next domino, there is then no responsibility for sin, then falls against the next domino, then there is no need for forgiveness. Guilt, responsibility, forgiveness. You deny one, you deny them all. You say that I've achieved that life of no sin, then you deny responsibility for your actions because that's not who you are. You're you're sinless. So if you commit some lie, say some slander, uh, lustfully think of someone, that's not me. So I'm not responsible for it and therefore I don't need any forgiveness. John is confronting that. So here's a summary of this second denial. That God is light, repudiates any denial of present sin and guilt-worthiness. That God is light repudiates the denial of present sin and guilt-worthiness. John labels it as self-deception. And it's, it's connected with this movement you could call perfectionism. And I don't mean perfectionism as, you know, you need to have all your tools lined up properly in the shop. Uh, and your wife comes and moves one of them, and and you freak out, you know, it's got to be right there. I'm not talking about that kind of perfectionism. Uh, I'm talking about the idea that you believe you have achieved perfection in life. And it, you know, maybe here in this context, because you've been taught so well, that would be so far away from your understanding, but it does exist within the Christian world. I remember during my time in Russia, meeting a pastor of a church there in uh, having a discussion on John uh, chapter 1 and it became quite serious because this pastor believed that he had arrived at perfection and that he said, look, if, if I, I may commit sin, but if there are any sins in my life, I don't know about them. And, and you just sit there and, and you just, your heart breaks and you just feel like saying, you just sinned to me five times in the statement that you just made. We must come to terms with the reality that we are so far away from that that pure standard of light. We dare not say we have no sin. And then we have the the third denial, and it's found in the next even verse, verse 10. Third denial. And it's the starkest. And it's this one. If we say that we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So in the if part of this sentence, you have the confession. What is here confessed? If we say that we have not sinned. Now here, the verb tense indicates that the confession is not just saying that right now, in the present moment, I do not have sin. That was dealt with in verse 8. And that's the idea that some of the Gnostics would have, that they would have arrived at a state of sinless perfection, either through antinomianism or through asceticism. But this one is even more extreme in that it denies the presence of sin in a person's life absolutely, as though there's never been sin. The, the, the verb tense there is what we call a perfect. So it has the idea of never having sinned. If we say that we never have sinned, that's what the confession is. It's a, you could say this is the blatant attitude of an unrepentant, unregenerate infidel. A person who says he's, his existence has never been touched by the stain of sin. First of all, it denies the imputation of sin simply as being one of Adam's descendants. It denies the fact that sin is imputed to us. It denies the fact that sin is also given to us through our our heritage. We were in the loins of Adam. And so all of Adam's descendants pass on sin to, to the next generation. And it denies any personal involvement in sin. It is the absolute denial of sinfulness. That's the confession. Now notice the implication, and it is the starkest implication in these denials. We make Him a liar, and the truth is not in us. Notice again, two aspects of this implication in the then statement. First of all, we make Him a liar. It started off in these denials that we lie, And then, we are deceived, and now, in this climax, it is, now we make Him a liar. We make God a liar. This is the strongest statement yet. A liar you make of Him, John says. And essentially, you equate God With the devil himself, the devil who is called the father of lies. That is how serious the the denial of sin is. You make him a liar. And that's why there cannot be any tolerance on our part of anyone who denies the reality of sinfulness as part of their history. The person who says there is no such thing as sin, the person who says I never have had sin in my life, the person who asserts that sin has never been a part of their experience is a person who has made God a liar. And we don't just say, well, that's, uh, that, that's not really... No, we say, you are a liar. You are a liar. Moreover, John says in the truth... Or, excuse me, the Word is not in us. His Word is not in us. That Word that James 1.21 says, that Word... Which is implanted in us that saves our soul, or 1 Peter 1:23 says that, that we have been born again by the living and enduring word of God. Essentially, John is making a very strong statement that because the word is not in such people, they are certainly not saved. There is no salvation in them. There is no light, there is no truth, there is no redemption. So those are the denials. Three denials, each one growing in intensity. Let me summarize them. Verse 6, that God is light repudiates inconsistency between lofty profession and life practice. Number two, that God is light repudiates the denial of present sin and guilt worthiness. And number three, that God is light, here's the third summary, repudiates the denial of of prior sinfulness. Now let's turn to the positive affirmations here, and there are two of them nestled between these denials, one in verse 7 and one in verse 9. And again, each of these are are confessions, although in verse 7 the the verb to say is not there, and I'll explain that in just a moment, but in verse 9 there is a confession that is stated, but what we do see that that John does here is, again, he includes himself in it. Notice again, we, we, we in these verses. These are universal truths. They're transcendent and applicable to everyone. Let's look at the first of these affirmations. Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship. With one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So so here is the, the reality, not stated here as a confession, simply as a reality. Paul or John is getting away from just lofty pronunciations and just looking at the reality of life. He he brings it back from what was denied in verse six, the concept of walking. And he says, if we walk in the light, if we walk that, that, that general conduct of life, the pattern, the practice, where are you headed in life? Look at your trajectory. What's the path that you're on? And again, sometimes men can get caught up with this and say, well, you know, I, I do stumble. John's not looking at those exceptions to the walk when you fall into the ditch for a few moments or a few hours. He's talking about the trajectory of your life, your walk, what generally characterizes your life. If we walk in the light, if we walk in that light, which is God Himself, God is light. If we walk in that context, if we walk in His holiness, if we walk according to His character, if we walk where, where God is, you could say. The implication then Is as follows. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Again, notice a twofold implication in the then part of this clause. Two implications. Number one, then we have fellowship. We have fellowship. We have fellowship with one another, he says. There's the first of the implications if you are walking in the context of God, in His light, in His holiness, if that's the trajectory of your life, the pathway of your life, he says, then we have fellowship with one another. Here's that same word koinonia drawn from verse 6. We have fellowship, close association. We have mutual interests with one another. We share. We have communion with. Now, the, the question is, why does John say we have fellowship with one another? Because here's the reality, and, and, and you know this, that, that when you walk in darkness, there is the absence of unity in the darkness. Yes, sinners will congregate together, right? Just go to downtown in the, in the darkness, in the middle of the night, and a lot of sinners hanging around there, but there's no such thing as fellowship there. True fellowship is found in the light. It's assumed that, this, that there's already fellowship with God because you're walking in Him, and that by nature then leads to shared communion with others in the light. That is the context in which we will find true fellowship with other human beings. Not outside the light. Never in the darkness. Though there are many on that road. The only place where we will find true communion, true koinonia, is in holiness. Because that light has has dissolved, it sterilized the pollution, allowing us to enjoy what we all want, what we all desire, what we have been made to long for, and that is unity. There's nothing more precious than when brothers dwell together in unity, right? That's what the psalmist says. But that will not happen in the absence of of holiness. John says, when we walk in the light as God Himself is in the light, we will find this unity, this fellowship. And that's why holiness is never going to be found by isolating yourself in the wilderness. When holiness is is experienced, When it is cultivated, it naturally leads toward an attraction to others who share the same commitment. That's why when the person who's truly pursuing holiness is going to have a love for the church. We'll see that more a little bit later when John talks so much about loving the brethren. In chapters 2-5. to But the pursuit of holiness, and this is where it often goes astray in some of the mystical elements of Christianity, the pursuit of holiness is is so much viewed as this individual thing, this isolated kind of lifestyle, this this person who's who's by himself somewhere. He's his own pope. And and he's, he's pursuing holiness. And he's too good for everyone else. Now John says that when we walk in the light, we will have fellowship with others. It will lead to this kind of unifying effect when we join together in one corporate body. That's what God has designed it to be. But more than that, notice the second half of this implication. Look back at at, at verse 7. Not only will we have fellowship with one another, not only will this holiness inspire community, the next part of that implication is that the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. Interesting. Wait a minute. John says if you, you're in the light, why is there any need for cleansing? Aren't you perfect then? No, the interesting paradox here is that as we walk in the light, as we as we walk on this path in the holiness of God, as He has defined it in Himself, the light that God gives sterilizes the the sin that still remains in our lives. It's a present tense. It's speaking of an ongoing reality. The blood of Jesus is then that sterilizing factor that, that cleanses us. That's why, again, perfectionism is so uh, opposite to what John is teaching. John assumes there's still remnant sin in the life of this individual. But the only place where that remaining sin is going to be sterilized out of existence is going to be as that person walks in the light. Then there will be that increasing Mortification of sin and vivification of 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 righteousness. It's what we'll get to in the next session uh, when we look at chapters two to five. It's it's what John gets to in, in chapter two, verses one and two. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And the advocation of Christ through his high priestly ministry, as He he applies the finished cross work to our lives every day, that happens within the context of us walking in the light. That's where He is operating. As we pursue holiness, as we pursue the character of God and reflecting that in our lives, that that lifestyle then results in this, 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 this sterilization of the sin in our lives as the light beams of God's Holiness zap and kill the bacteria of sin. So here's the summary of this first affirmation. That God is light, brings fellowship and cleansing to all who enter this light. That's an implication that is so needed for us that God is light brings fellowship and cleansing to all who enter this light and it's one of the things that I love to hold out to men who will come and confess sin and say I've been struggling with something over the last few days and I don't know what to do and I'll say to to the to the man listen the worst thing that you can do is go and retreat into the darkness of your basement you might feel like that's where you belong. But don't listen to that because that's the voice of the devil. He wants to get you isolated in the darkness. He wants to tell you that the worst place for you to be now is with other Christians. And I say to him, you know what, the best place for you right now is to find your way humbly into every possible expression of Christian fellowship that you can get yourself into. To any expression of of, of the teaching of the Scripture. You need to be there. So I'll say to guys, guys, if you're serious about your sin, if you know you've got a problem here, you're stumbling regularly, and I'll say, be at morning service, be at evening service, be at Wednesday night service, go to every Bible study that you can fit into your schedule, be together with Christians, call and meet them for coffee, do whatever you can. If you're serious about what you just told me, don't, don't retreat into isolation. Know that God is light brings fellowship and cleansing to all who will enter this light. You want holiness, you know it's beautiful, then get into it. Get into the light. That's where you, you need to be. Christian fellowship is, is the best place for purification because Christian fellowship takes place, true Christian fellowship takes place in the context of Divine holiness. Then there is a second confession here, a second implication in the affirmative. The, the fifth one that we're looking at this morning, and it's it's found in verse 9. And it's our other, our second positive affirmation as John deals with implications of the light. It's the final one, and it's the one that all of us have probably memorized. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the climactic positive affirmation that John brings out to us as an implication of the light. And again, let's deal with the reality. What's the reality? What's the confession here? If we confess our sins. Hmm. Now this verb for confess... Is different from the verb to say that we found in verse 6, in verse 8, and verse 9. It is a different word. It's still the word confession, but it's not just merely a a verbal pronunciation. The word for confession here, hamalageo, which means to say the same thing. Confession. To say. The same thing. Wait a minute, how does that mean confession? Well, in the context here, when John is talking about confession, the idea is this, confession of sins. Notice the plural. Now John is, is, is speaking very concretely about specific actions we've done. When he uses the singular, it's referring to general sinfulness. It's more sin in the abstract. Sins, plural, is, is concrete specific ones, if we confess sins, if we say the same thing about sins, what what is he talking about? It's, It's this, if we call our sins the same way that God does, that's confession. Confession is when we say, this is what we did. And we don't say, I made a mistake. We don't say, I misjudged something. We don't say, I used the wrong words. We don't say... I just, you know, couldn't handle my my emotion. No, we call it as God calls it, and that's why it's so very important in, in your confession. Both, and it doesn't. And it's not clear here whether whether John is referring to confession and prayer to God or confession to each other. And that's really not the point to get hung up on that. He's talking about a general lifestyle that we are upfront. And we call a spade a spade. That's what marks us. Whether that's to God or to man. And we say the same thing. And what what that means is we call it what it is in reality. And so when it's it's the sin of lust, we don't just say, yeah, I looked at some bad pictures or had some bad ideas. No, we say it's lust. Or when we slandered somebody, we didn't just say, yeah, I shouldn't have said that. No, we use biblical terms. We use the language that God has revealed to us to describe those things. We use it in our own prayers and in our own confessions. And so on a personal level, here's what's very, very important in our own confession of sin because John is commending it. So it's something all of us must be doing. So when you pray to God and you confess your sins, you use God's language for it and you say, To the Lord, you say, I know that this is how you have described this sin. It is debauchery. Or it is lust. Or it is malice. It is evil. You find those biblical terms and you state them. You don't play fancy with God. You call it for what it is. And you let the, the starkness of those words sink in. Yes, that's what I did. And when we confess to one another, when we ask for forgiveness, we don't just say, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. No, we go to one another and say, listen, brother, I want to confess my sin to you and ask for your forgiveness. I slandered you. Or I was angry at you. I had thoughts of malice toward you. We find those stark terms And if we are not ready to say them, it means our confession is not true. Confession means to say the same thing as what that is in reality. And that is a key mark. And and listen, the more we cultivate that into our practice, that will impact our lives. And we all know that'll work out for the, for the good of, of us and others. You think of it and in terms of those personal relationships and confession, right? When we know we've sinned against one another, you know what it's like when a brother who's sinned against you comes up to you and says, yeah, I, I should have acted differently. Please forgive me. And you know that you, you need to be more concrete and we're generous and gracious. And, and of course, we, we're willing to meet the person halfway and say, yeah, I forgive you. And, and that's that. But how much more is it easier to forgive when the person comes before you with tears in his eyes and says, brother, I slandered you. Forgive me. And it's amazing how that impacts the forgiver. Wow. Of course I forgive you. We're with our spouses. Um, one of the things, even in, in my own life, is that I've had to learn, I, I don't just say, honey, I'm sorry, especially in the Canadian way. Although that does have a certain level of efficacy that, is, that transcends the other way of saying sorry. But not to say just, I'm sorry, but to say, I sinned. Forgive me. I should not have used harsh words with you, or I should not have belittled you, or I should not have treated you with disrespect. Using those words has, has, a, has a tremendous impact on both the one confessing and the one who forgives. And that's exactly what we find coming in here we speak of this confession and that, that use of our words. Notice the implication that comes from this, and there's two of them again. With all of these then statements, there are two of these. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a twofold, a twofold part to this implication. Now, it's an interesting thing. What John is describing here is, is, a, is a present course of action in life. He, he states it in the present tense, not once that we confessed our sins and, and then we were converted and that's it. No, as Martin Luther said, the Christian life is a life of repentance. It's a life of confession. It's what we're doing all the time. And and that's the amazing thing about the Christian life, isn't it? Is that on the one hand, we're we're simultaneously justified and and at the same time sinful. And the the theologians have a Latin term for that. I won't state it, but it's simultaneously justified and sinful at the same time. And that's what John is speaking of here. He says that That we will will be confessing our sins and, and God is what? He is faithful and righteous. Those two attributes are so important. We've already learned with these is statements that God is light. He's holy. But now John introduces two more here. He is first faithful. Pistos. It refers to the keeping of promises. It refers to loyalty, in the sense of loyal to His Word. And secondly, He is righteous. He maintains, in this cleansing and forgiveness, He maintains His character of purity, of righteousness. And and that raises the question, well, how can God forgive? How can God forgive sin, as is described here, and be both faithful and righteous? And that brings us back to to what we learn of, for example, in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, that because of what happens in the cross through Jesus Christ, God is both just and the justifier. That if it wasn't for the cross of Christ, God would not be righteous in forgiving sin. But in the marvel of the incarnation and ultimately in the in the atonement, there is the way, the only way that God can remain on the one hand both righteous and and completely morally transcendent and untouched by sin, and at the same time, the one who forgives others. If we confess our sins, He Himself, He is, what? Faithful and righteous to forgive our sins, to forgive has the idea there of removal. To remove the guilt, the blameworthiness. As the Lutheran commentator Lenski states, when we do this, God sends them away in the same way that a cloud is dissolved never to reappear again. Secondly, He is faithful and just, to cleanse us. Not only does He deal with uh, the consequence of our sin by taking away the guilt-worthiness because of what Jesus Christ has done, but He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So there is the fact that there is something still within us that produced the sin, it's our flesh, and there is still the consequences of, of that sinfulness in our lives. And through this life of walking in holiness... Walking in the light, confessing our sins, God is faithful and just to use that light of His holiness to eradicate that which caused it in the first place, to cleanse us from the unrighteousness that is at the heart of our sin. That is what it means to live in the light. So, here are those two summaries of the affirmations here that God is light brings. Fellowship and cleansing to all who enter this light. And then number two, that God is light brings forgiveness and cleansing to all who agree with God about their sins. Now in closing, we must say, how do we get into this light and how is this all possible And I'll just close with the words that he says right after this as he deals with these if-then statements. Five implications of the light. Three denials, two affirmations. And then immediately after this, he says verse 1 of chapter 2, My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and verse 2, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. Apart from Him, there is no talk of holiness. Apart from what He has done, there is no possibility for it. And so as we think of all this, we must bathe this whole study within the propitiation that Christ brought for us, for our sins. And so my exhortation to you is if you have not known the light, if you have not known what it means to walk in the light and these things like fellowship and truth, forgiveness and cleansing, these kinds of things are just foreign to you. you. You know what the words mean, but you say, I haven't experienced them in my life. Then I say, look at the beginning of verse 2 of chapter 2. Jesus himself is the propitiation for your sins. Go to him. Go to him, and you'll find that satisfaction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for Your Word that makes these things understandable to us. And so when we think of Your character as light, Your Word then describes all the implications that flow out of it. And it, it, it leaves these things in very very black and white ways, and clear ways. And we thank You for that. And so as we contemplate Your holiness... We ask that you would would make these implications understandable to us in even greater ways. That that this understanding would move beyond just mental comprehension and would lead to a lot of heart examination. That that we ourselves would examine our confessions and our conduct. to, To look at whether what we say about ourselves is in agreement with Your truth and in agreement with the way that we actually live. Father, may Your Spirit be actively applying these things to our lives today and in the days to come. May You keep these truths in the forefront of our minds. And may You continue in all of this to draw us back to our great gratitude for Jesus Christ who became the propitiation for our sins and the basis upon which even our temporal sins that we still commit may find that the cleansing and forgiveness that we so desperately need every day of our lives. And we ask this all in in His name. Amen.